Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1188, with guest Rick Strahl. Recorded Friday, August 28th, 2015. Guess what? It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're here. Rick Strahl is here. We're going to have a good time talking about ASP.NET V next. But uh, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. Things are fabulous. It's actually raining. Ah, uh, yeah. And, that, and That's it, nice there's for been you. almost no rain the entire summer in right. Vancouver, which is weird. So I think we're almost grateful for the rain. Like, oh, my God, thank goodness for this. I'm living in the rainforest of the United States, apparently, the <laughs> oh, northeast. It's hard there. It's just precipitation has been, you know, since the winter, it's been really hard. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, it's been okay. It's been actually a pretty, pretty nice moderate summer. But anyway, enough chit-chat. Yeah. I got something for a Better Know Framework I don't know if you've heard about before. Maybe uh, Rick I has. I like to know. <laughs> All right, buddy, what is it? So I went looking for some open source MVC alternatives to ASP.NET just to see if there's anything that I haven't seen yet. Yep. And turns out there's this one, and there's a bunch of them, by the way, and there's a lot of opinions about these things. You know, some people are avid followers and users of this of these things and other people are like what's the point of this right why would i do that why would i do that yeah so one of them is fubu f-u-b-u rick have you heard about fubu fubu mbc vc yeah i've heard about it um i played around with it some time ago but i haven't used it a whole lot so if you go to tinyurl.com slash fubu f-u-b-u-m-v-c you can read about it download it check it out their, their claims are, you know, cleaner code, modularity, testability, convention over configuration. All sounds pretty good. And you start uh, um, bingling uh, uh, <laughs> and you find out that, you know, people are, are, are not as happy with these things as they thought they were going to be. So, but That's you know, always, you'll find, yeah. you'll find uh, really good solutions and not really not so good solutions. Nothing's free, right? It comes with some kind of baggage. Yeah. But it was an interesting read, and it kept me engaged for a good 10 minutes. No, I'm serious. It was probably about an hour and a half that I, I looked around awesome. at these things. But uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm not endorsing it, and I'm not saying use it. I'm just saying these things exist out there. For sure. Yeah. So that's what I got. Cool, man. FUBU MVC. Just another way to MVC your world. Right. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off the show, 1018, one we did with one Rick Strahl, where we talked about building mobile web apps. And Patrick Lind, who I'm pretty sure already has a mug, but I think he earned another one for this comment because it kicked off a huge chain of discussion. This is from about a year ago. Uh, he says, hey, Carl and Richard, first of all, thank you guys for all your hard work on the excellent shows. I just wanted to comment, and full disclosure, I'm a developer who has bought into Xamarin on some disagreements I have with what Rick was saying in regards to native apps versus web. Mm -hmm. I understand why we're all still on the, quote, write once, run everywhere mantra. It's a fantastic pie-in-the-sky dream for developers. But you know who hates this idea? Consumers. Yeah, that's right. They don't care. Yeah, I don't think they hate it at all. I think they couldn't care less. It's, yeah. They're totally indifferent to it. They just only want it to run on their device. Yeah. When I use my phone, I want to have a mobile app that ties into the built-in aspects of my mobile device with notifications and so on and feels like it's an extension of my device. I don't want to pull up web pages or use my browser. Okay, that's fair. Fair. Yeah, that's not the same as right once, run everywhere, something that consumers hate. Uh, there's one simple example that illustrates this point. The Windows Phone app gap problem. The Uber app is out now, but prior to its release, it would have been acceptable to say to a potential buyer of Windows Phone, no, we don't have an app, but you can use the website. Mm. Absolutely not. 
they want the app. And I would not disagree with that. I've had exactly that experience. The yep. web app is lousy. Yep. And then they made an Uber app, which was a Cordova version of the web app, which was worse. Even worse. Then they took that off. Then they actually built an Uber app. And then they didn't maintain it, so it stopped working. Bummer. And that sucks, too. Yep. <laughs> and now when I want Uber, I pull up my Android phone. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I don't believe the web is going to win here. For the same reason that I prefer the native Outlook client over the web Gmail client, I prefer a mobile app that feels like it's been tailored towards me and my device instead of a generic web app that looks the same everywhere. Well, you can tailor web apps too, but I still, I think there's, there's points here that are important and I don't disagree with them, Patrick. And, and Rick responded to this a year ago. I don't know if you remember your response, Rick, but it was, it kicked off a long discussion I thought was quite valuable and I encourage people to go back and read it as well. The big thing, I think, with the app model is it's real estate on your screen, which is a plus and a minus. But at least when you have the app, you know it's there as opposed to needing to go to the web page. Right. Certainly, the integration, you, you can't argue that. The make sure it's tailored to your device thing. Well, you can screw that up with Xamarin, too. In fact, sure. you can screw it up with writing in in uh, Cocoa and Xcode, right? Yep. Like. There's no guarantees of, of a well-integrated app one way or the other, and no given tool will save you from that one way or the other. I don't, I don't think that makes really a difference what platform you use there because, I mean, you can tailor an app in, in, in JavaScript and HTML. For to sure. Be, People do it all the time. Be, but, but be specifically tailored to a specific OS, right? Yep, so you, sure. you could tar tailor it for mobile specifically and then you get a good experience. And there are also ways that you can tie into, um, the native features. Well, Cordova is one of them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, if you do it right, you can take advantage of almost all the things that are available. Uh, I, I hear the point totally. It's, you know, mobile development is difficult. It continues to be difficult Without a doubt. because, because there's so many freaking choices of how to do things and none of them are really easy. Everything has their ups and downsides. So, yep. and I, and just to be totally fair here, I'm taking a comment that Patrick wrote a year ago and the mobile landscape has continued to evolve. I'm looking at Cordova apps built with stuff like Angular these days, mm. where I'm really struggling to know that that was built with web technology at all. Yep. You know, it, and that wasn't true a year ago. Like, clearly, the SPA capabilities have come all, have evolved a lot and look really interesting in the mobile space. So, you know, here you are using your web skills, not necessarily building a quote-unquote web app. You're just packaging it a different way, the same way that Xamarin takes your C-sharp skills and packages it a different way. So it, it definitely an ongoing landscape. Uh, it's an interesting thing. And Patrick, uh, I know you've, we've sent you a mug before. I'd love to send you another one. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media we post. We put every show up on Google Plus and Facebook. And if you can comment there, we will send you a mug as well. And now let me formally introduce Rick. Rick Strahl is the big kahuna at West Wind Technologies, located on the beautiful island of Maui, Hawaii. Between windsurf sessions and big wind and waves, Rick has been a software developer for over 25 years, developing web-centric business applications since the very early days of the web. Today, Rick builds client-centric web applications and services for customers with HTML5, JavaScript, and mobile web technologies and the ASP.NET stack on the back end. Rick is a 15-year Microsoft MVP, currently for ASP.NET, and he writes a popular web development blog at weblog.west-wind.com. Welcome back, Rick. Hey, thank you for having me again. It's funny, when you got on the phone with Richard, you guys were immediately talking about, what was it, windsurfing? Windsurfing, where, yes. In Columbia? Yeah, I'm in, in Oregon right now, and I am uh, an avid windsurfer, and I use the Columbia River as my playground. <laughs> So half the year in Hawaii, half the year in Oregon? Uh, this year it's working out that way. Not usually, but uh, yeah, this year it's working out that way. I'll be here a little bit longer for sure this year. It's just the water's a whole bunch colder in Oregon than it is in Hawaii. Uh, actually, this year we've had a really, really warm year, and it's it's freakishly warm, actually. Huh. Um, and the water temperature is actually um, pretty close to the 70s. It's It might be 71, 72. Wow. Which is unusual, yes. So it's very, just very a shorty warm. suit, like how much? How much protection do you wear? Yeah, shorty suit is all you need. Wow. Uh, you can, and some days, you know, it's been really hot, so you can go out with board shorts and uh, rash guard. That's all it takes. Yeah, that's that's cool. Well, I'm and, and just to be 
clear. I don't windsurf. I think you people are crazy. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, when, when, you, when you're when you out on the water and it's blowing 50 miles an hour and you got 10-foot swells rolling down the river, it's it's it yeah, looks... And you're on a piece of fiberglass about eight feet long with a stick sticking up with a big sail on it. <laughs> what could happen? Yeah. yeah. It sounds perfect to me. I don't know. <laughs> well, Rick, you've been in this business for a long time. You've been doing web stuff. We had you on very early on in .NET Rocks history. You've seen frameworks come and go. You've seen technologies and tools come and go. You've got a good perspective of how this new version of ASP.NET fits in with uh, within that history. So um, let me just ask you an open-ended question, and that is sort of what are your your general uh, opinions of the way that they went about uh, building it and and how you're using it? Um, let me start off by saying that I think that uh, we are at a stage where this was really a necessary step to take for the ASP.NET team. So ASP.NET is... Um, now something like 15 years old, I believe. Yeah. So it has a, it has a really, really long history that dates back all the way to ASP classic. And so, um, it's, there's a lot of legacy code in that existing framework that we're using today. And so I think it's, it's, it's time to re-examine of how we building applications today, which is very, very, very different from what we used to do way back in the days when ASP.NET originally was created. Back in those days, we were building basically really, uh, page centric applications. Nowadays, we're really building much more service-centric applications where there's a lot more small pieces of content that are being served from the server. And so that affects the way that applications work in general. And so, I mean, I, are we going to just dump on web forms now? Because that's what we were worried about in 2001, 2002. Yeah. Uh, I, I still think web forms is a good solution for certain scenarios. If you're building your typical enterprise application that's very data heavy and you don't have a lot of time, you just need to get something to display. And it's an application that doesn't necessarily have a ton of functionality that needs to be supported down the line. It's just something that needs to get out there. Then web forms continues to be a good solution. Web forms has a lot of strengths in certain areas and it yeah. has a lot of lot of weaknesses in other places i think um i don't think this is really about that um you know it's it's about the stack in general and how the underpinnings of the framework work and then also moving forward into this new age where we're really not that concerned about building a lot of page centric applications anymore mm. i think we're looking at in a, in the current environment we're looking much more at building service centric applications that um uh, correspond to a, a uh talk with ajax type communications to feed data into json front ends that actually display the data are you going to miss http handlers and things like that i mean there's a lot of stuff that's not there right well, HTTP handlers and HTTP models, then modules, they're not there. Um, there is, uh, other things in there that let you do the same sort of thing. You can right. still build very low level pieces in this new framework, just like you could in the old one. It's just very different in the way that you built them. So in the case of, uh, vNext, you're essentially using, um, middleware components to do all of that. So for example, if I wanted to make something where, uh, I could handle somebody who wants to download an mp3 file let's say and i want to hook that which i would do in the old days well now these days with <laughs> an http handler um that would be very easy for me to get control and then you know maybe do a security check or something like that and how how is that going to be done without without an http handler so you typically use something that's called middleware which is similar to a module essentially and modules uh, hook into a pipeline that is, if you want to compare it to uh, the classic ASP.NET that we're used to, is essentially like the HTTP pipeline in ASP.NET in the okay. old days. So modules hook in along the way, and then they can choose it what they want to look at, just like modules used to do. So there is um, an, a, an event for better, you know, or a method or something like that that we can implement or an inter interface that I, we can get control at that level? Exactly. So it's essentially a chain of a, of, of modules that are strung together. So one calls the next. So you set up this chain and along the chain, 
components, uh, they plug into that pipeline. And so you can extend and hook in at any given point in time. The only complication there is, is you have to figure out which order these components go into. So in classic ASP.NET, you had the HTTP module pipeline, which had class specific events that you could hook into. So you kind of had an idea where everything goes, you know, the caching comes after the authentication and uh, the execution piece comes after all of that. So that's not really there. You have to decide of where that goes. So in mm. essence, it's a little more low level, but you actually get a lot more control in the process. So they, they remove these um, structures and, and uh, architectures because they were too heavy. To some degrees, yes. So the part of the reason for the overhaul is, is that ASP.NET is overall as a, as a runtime, the classic ASP.NET that we've been using is very, very heavy. We have system.web, which is a huge assembly. Um, everything from the HTTP pipeline to web forms to, uh, all the stuff that runs in just a basic startup code for a, an, a, ASP.NET web application, it's all in one big assembly. So first of all, you have to load that system.web assembly, which is a few megabytes in size right off the top. So that's memory that you're using. And then you have to hook into the pipeline that is actually responsible for handling requests. And so no matter, even if you run an HTTP handler, there's a fair bit of code that has to execute just to get to that actual code. And so what they're trying to do is just make that more lightweight so that there is a more direct connection between the code that you execute and the actual incoming request. So the call stack, so to say, is is much smaller in, in the new um, ASPV Next stuff. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Stackify fully integrates application performance management with error and log management in one platform capture performance issues as they happen without having to wait for them to reoccur. A cost-effective and lightweight agent provides you code-level insights. Try Stackify now for free and get your copy of the hilarious Developers Against Humanity card game once you activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to get your free game. The other part that I think of is this is really about binding to IIS. You know, ASP.NET and IIS were inextricably intertwined for a long time. But the fact that they wanted to take ASP.NET and make it platform agnostic meant that they had to change that whole model. And that's a very important point. So th this is one of the big sales uh, points of this new platform. It's going to run on different web servers. And it's one of the very, very cool things about this is when you build your application in ASP.NET 5, you can target it at different web servers without doing anything. Now, you could sort of do that in uh, the old version, but you had to use OWIN. So right. it had to be something that runs on OWIN, first mm -hmm. of all, because and some of the stuff just doesn't run on OWIN, right? What You can't run web forms on OWIN, for example. So you had to run either Web API or SignalR. Uh, those were the things that were running on OWIN. But if you wanted to run an HTTP handler uh, in a different server, that really wasn't very easily accomplished. Yeah, so. That tangle between IIS and ASP.NET became a real big liability. Right. So everything in the HTTP pipeline is actually synced up with events that match now. <laughs> actually, it's been going back and forth, right? So ASP.NET came out, and initially there was an ISAPI module that actually connected all of that together. Right. right. And then after a while, they decided, well, we can just match the pipeline that we're using in ASP.NET in actual IIS, so it's easier to map all these events back and forth. So we have a single model. But now we've more intricately even bound those things together, and it's very intricately uh, tangled up with IIS, as you point out so nicely. <laughs> so another thing is the uh, ability to select the, the CLR as it is, and then there's a, a lighter weight core CLR. And I wonder if there's a, a sort of a, a, you know, what your guidelines are for for choosing? So it comes back to what we were just talking about. So part of the reason that the new framework is designed the way it is, is that it has to run on different web servers and by definition also on different platforms potentially. So currently there is two platforms that Microsoft is shipping and there's going to be more later on. But at this point there is the full CLR, which is um, 
the DNX runtime running the full CLR. Let me clarify that. Um, and what that means is that there is a DNX loader and it loads up a particular runtime. And this, this could be the full .NET framework. So that's uh, .NET 4.5.1 or 4.6. Or it could be the core CLR, which is that more lighter weight, specifically designed for server version of the CLR that can, uh, that, that is basically loaded from NuGet packages. So that version, the .NET core version is much smaller than the full CLR. And what that means is it's very modularized and it is a little bit different than the full CLR in terms of what's available, number one, and also in the way that you reference things. So the process of developing for the .NET Core platform is somewhat different. Now, the reason for that new um, .NET Core runtime is that, uh, first of all, it's more lightweight and more modular. So you can choose exactly the things that you want to use. You don't have to include something like system.web and have everything come in, but rather you choose all the little pieces that you want and you can pull them in individually. And so that potentially... Uh, can make things much more lightweight because you're pulling in much less code that actually runs and executes in your server or is actually loaded into memory at some point. Um, the other, other piece to that is, though, that uh, this .NET Core is really a distilled version of the .NET runtime that is just the core pieces of what you need to be able to run uh, an application generator. So if you think of platforms like Node.js, Right. They, they are multi-platform from the get-go. Right. And so they can't support things that are Windows specific or Linux specific. All those things that are specific to the platform, they live in external, uh, packages that you import into the system. And then you can maybe call whatever other things that you need to interact with. So the core, uh, framework is very, very small and lightweight. And then you pull in additional things. And that's very important if you want to run cross-platform. So at the moment, Microsoft has the .NET Core for Windows, and they are working, and I believe sometime very soon they're going to have a uh, .NET Core that runs on Linux and potentially the Mac. And I think that's part of the reason to make the Core was to make it small enough that there was a chance to actually get it built, you know, sort of trim away the stuff you don't need to build. They also got to be able to open source that, too. Yeah, but I think the main reason that they had to do this is they had to build the the core piece that will run that that has the functionality that is common to all the platforms. Right. So yeah, you, ha you have to pull out the things that are Windows specific. Yeah. So if you run .NET Core right now, you don't have to support for com objects, for example. You don't right. have support for Active Directory. You don't have support for native SQL Server libraries and stuff like that. Yeah. So they just so, limited it to the things that can be built to run everywhere. Correct. So you building essentially a universal runtime that is capable of running on potentially multiple platforms. You you mentioned DNX, and that brings up a an acronym alphabet soup that command line <laughs> users need to get familiar with, like uh, KRE and KVM and KPM and what is all this stuff anyway? What is K? <laughs> Well, K is, was the code name for DNX before it, it got its name shade. So DNX stands for .NET Runtime, and that's essentially the runtime that hosts um, the uh, the actual application that you that you're launching. Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of DNX tools, which are command line tools that you can use to administer this DNX runtime. So you can. Uh, there's a .NET version manager, for example, that allows you to download new versions and uh, pull in packages. Um, there's a DNX runtime, a loader, essentially, that allows you to start up an application and execute an application from the command line. So um, with .NET Core, you can build an application, essentially, or with DNX in general, you can build an application as say as a console app, but that console app is not going to be an exe. It's going to be a project that you start with the DNX runtime. So it's kind of similar to the way that you start a node application when you point it at a file that actually launches the entire application. So the runtime is sort of the bootloader that is responsible for bringing up this environment that everything that's 
sits on top of it, runs in. And then the DNX decides which .NET runtime to load. So whether it's the .NET Core version or whether it's the full CLR version or whether it's the Linux version or whether at this point, if you want to run on Mac or Linux, you have to use Mono. There's a Mono runtime that gets loaded. So the DNX loaders are actually responsible for making all that happen. Right. And this so is the, not all real yet. Like it's all still under construction. They haven't, I mean, it's early September right now as the show comes out and they haven't even shipped the, the Windows version. It's just in beta. Right. And it's a, it's a pretty rough beta too at that. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, the messaging around all of these releases has been pretty bad in my opinion because. Yeah. Um, it was really difficult to tell until right before Visual Studio ship that, um, it wasn't clear that the DNX runtimes and all of this ASP.NET 5 stuff wasn't actually going to ship with this, the whole wave of Visual Studio and Windows 10 and everything shipping. Right. So I, I was really surprised until I didn't know about that until about two months before when they mentioned it in one of the community standups. Um, so the messaging around that was really difficult. And I, I was under the impression it was going to come out and I, I was loudly complaining and said, you can't be serious. This is not even ready yet, but it turns out mm. it, it isn't ready because it's actually not supposed to be shipping until, uh, early next year sometime. I guess the question is, was that the plan or just the reality? Like did, did they think they were going to be done? And then, you know, you heard the moment where they admitted we're not going to be done. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I, you know, all I know is they didn't communicate it, right? We can only spec speculate. And, uh, as part of this reason too is, uh, all the betas that came out originally, they were really, really, really rough. Uh, mm. things were, things were changing, things were broken. And so in the early betas that came out, you couldn't really even use the release data as you had to always jump to the, to the tagged versions that they had on GitHub. So the development versions. And, and make no mistake, this is a complete rewrite. So like everything that you've ever used in ASP, ASP.NET has, has been rewritten. So there's going to be bu there are going to be bugs that we thought we were so done with. I don't know if that's really true. They didn't rewrite; they just refactored most things. Um, right. So, okay. You know, a lot. So so I think a lot of the ASP.NET code that goes into MVC, let's say, or Web API, is still there. The logic for that. I mean, they refactored it very very heavily and probably ended up in new files and whatnot so, but so maybe we could say the underpinnings were were changed yeah that's that's true yeah. and the same goes for .NET core i think um they are using the existing code base but they're heavily heavily refactoring it so, so are we talking in, i mean we're basically describing you picked up a house and tried to put it down on a new foundation yeah 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 that's a, that's a good analogy i think yeah and that's uh that's tricky. You're gonna lose a couple of rooms along the way. <laughs> uh, and that's very, very true. And that's you know, the biggest problem that I have had basically is that when you switch to .NET Core, if you use the full runtime, you have pretty much the same functionality that you always used to. But right. then if you're going to switch to this new version of ASP.NET, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to switch to the full CLR version because mm. then why are we really doing this? Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you're getting the benefits of the dependency injection, the overall platform, and a lot of the things that they're doing in the top-level ASP.NET layer, but you're not getting the benefits of the improved performance, the lighter footprint, and what whatnot. There are you know, compiler directives, right? You can check to see if you're running on the core versus that. So you could essentially write one code base that works on both of them, right? Yes. And uh, essentially, you can define in your project.json a target, and you give it a name, any name you want it to, but there's standard names like DNX451 or DNX core. Mm -hmm. And then you can use those names as compiler directives in your code anywhere in that project. They automatically get injected into the compiler, so they're always there. And then you can, based on that, do an if, you know, if it's this thing, do that. If it's that thing, do the other. Mm. Do you think they've misnamed it? Is this really a beta? It seems more like an alpha. That's that's my point. <laughs> I mean, certainly, certainly when the first beta versions came out, it was it was really quite 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 unstable. And um I, I didn't think it had any right to be called a beta. And I mean to me, a beta means that you have an environment that is stable, that doesn't change constantly. And through these betas, um, 
upgrading between these different versions of betas has been pretty painful until the last one. I think the last one between five and six has actually been reasonably easy. But between three and four, I literally had to throw out everything I'd done, create a new project, and then just copy my old files back in to get everything to work. Wow. There, was, there was too much to change. So yeah. You mean you threw away code? Well, all my configuration code, the startup oh, okay. code. Trying to get the, the, the project references all lined up again. It was just easier to actually throw away all that code and, and create a new project and copy the files, the actual application files into that project than it was to, yeah, than, than to actually go yeah. ahead and try to update the old one. I'm trying to imagine the pain. Well, how would you get there that it would be that bad? Well, I, I think what they're doing is, you know, at this point, the assumption is that most people will be playing with the stuff, not necessarily right. building something and carrying it forward. And uh, if it wasn't so misnamed as a beta, I think it would be pretty clear. But yeah, if this was an alpha, you wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't be so surprised. But to me, a beta means that it, there's some reasonable assumption that I can take code that exists in this beta and goes to the next beta. It's going to be it's going to carry forward. OK, it's bug fixing. Yeah, exactly. But that's that's just not the case. I think we're just getting to it now. So if you jump in now, I think chances are that there aren't going to be these huge upheavals that we've had in the past. So, Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You guessed it, man. It's time to execute a DNX using KLR pulled into a DNU VM on WinX with a pinch of NACL. Okay? <laughs> okay. 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 You sure that was enough acronyms, dude? Just just having a bowl of soup here. Okay. It's actually time to give away a music to code by music and video collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But let me tell you about music to code by. You've probably heard a lot about it if you've been listening to .NET Rocks. It's a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized quiet and groovy instrumentals specifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive with music to code by. So see what all the fuss is about. Check it out at mtcb.pwop.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? And by the way, I did a, a little uh, report to see how many individual tracks that uh, that uh, people have bought. Yeah, yeah. over 10,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's a lot. Yeah, that's cool. Congratulations. Today's winner, Mark Aaron. Ah, congratulations, Mark. Golf yeah. clap for you, sir. And Mark just won the Music to Code by Audio and Video Collection. That includes a documentary that I did on the making of this music. Interesting stuff for sure. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And Rick, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? <laughs> Five thousand dollars, huh? <laughs> yeah. What I really would like, though, is um, I would like to get a big ass monitor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How a, big is big, my is friend? That a Hawaiian term? Yeah. <laughs> a big kahuna of a monitor. Yeah, yeah. a big kahuna. <laughs> so how big is big? So, you know, we, we've had uh, 4K displays for some time now, yep. but it seems like there is a real dearth of monitors that are actually big. Um, beyond us, you know, beyond even, I think there's a few 40 inch monitors, mm. yeah, but wouldn't it be scarce. nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have a 50 inch monitor and, or, or maybe even bigger and have that as just one monitor instead of a whole bunch of monitors. Right. right. Yeah, it would be a 50 inch monitor is really, really big, <laughs> <laughs> but it would be one? really, no, I haven't seen one, but I, they do have 40 inch monitors. Um, Philips has one and they're actually not that expensive. I would love to hear from somebody who's actually has one and uh, the reviews look pretty good, but they're only like 900 bucks or something. So maybe two or three of those. <laughs> <laughs> That's acres of monitor. I mean, the main thing here is the resolution, right? I mean, 4K seems to be the magic number. The cheap 4Ks are like 27 and 28 inch. They're too small to use at mm. full resolution. Right. Exactly. It's microscopic. So, so you, they're, but they make 32s, uh, you know, 33s, and they're a couple of grand. Like that's a bit more money too. They're more expensive as they, as the high res ones get bigger. 
there is a couple of 5K monitors now. Dell's got a 5K monitor, which is, is sort of vaguely based on one of Apple's 5K monitors. But it's but too the, small. Like, it's too 5K would be a, in a 38-inch? Now you're talking. Like, there is a nice DPI level at a nice size. Their 5K, which is only 2000 bucks, is a 27-inch monitor. That's, that's really small pixels. So if I got 40-inch, these 40-inch Philips monitors, Richard... I have I would I probably have to get another PC because or a video card because I'm using DVI dual layer. Right. And I don't even know if that'll drive these things. No, when you switch over to the 4K stuff, it's all DisplayPort now. Yeah. Like that that's the way, which is good because DVI dual is a pain in the butt. Yes it is. Right? Yeah. Like no two ways about it. That is a difficult uh thing to work with. So is there a video card that you can put into a you know, a PC that you've bought in the last five years that will uh, will drive two of those forty inch monitors. You know, maybe two cards. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, four K is starting to not be so weird. Yeah, and it, for a while it was pretty weird. So, uh, you, you mean there was there was I saw examples where you actually had to plug two HDMI cables in and run a special driver, which spoke to me of this isn't going to work. Kind of set fire to my house here. Yeah, yeah? it's just like nothing good is going to come of this. Yeah, but uh, with the new the HDMI two spec and the DisplayPort one point four spec, I have more faith. Yeah, that uh, that we'll actually be able to uh, to get monitors that really work this way. But yeah, I haven't seen any forties that impress me, but they're big. I don't know that I want a 40. 40 is, seems seems okay if you think about it. I mean, if you have a 27-inch or even you have that 34-inch one, right? I mean, that's pretty big. It's not that much bigger. It's just yeah, more square. The third, that's it's a 21 taller. by 9. It's quite narrow top to bottom. Right. Like, that's the thing that would happen to, in a 40 is that height you'd get. Welcome it's- to Three Geeks Talk About ASP.NET. <laughs> <laughs> but people care about mo- monitors a big deal dude i uh, i'm telling you i'm i'm about ready to build a new pc and get some new monitors th- i'm with yeah. you yeah but it trying to i'm trying to find okay well there you go how found here's a big monitor for you dude how about an 85 inch <laughs> wow lg makes an a uh, yeah the they this is the thing that they make uh service hub around and it's it's a 4K monitor, but it's that is big, and it's a touchscreen. <laughs> nice. Like that's a big display. The problem is most of these big displays they're only 1080p. They're not even right. 4K. Yeah, it, that's the problem. It, it, it's not the size; it's the resolution that you want. Yeah, it's right? the only I mean, ma- it's, the only thing that matters is resolution. It's just right. that, and, and you want to run it native. You don't want any scaling. Nothing. Nope. You just and you want totally that to with be you. big enough. Yeah. So I think 40 inch is kind of the magic number for a 4K display anyway to get it. It looks like they discontinued that monitor, or is there another one, Richard? The LG Which, uh, 84L M9600. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. But yeah. On the lookout for 40-inch 4K monitors. <laughs> Definitely the ability to burn through five grand there. That's That'll eat that five grand. You won't even know it hits you. That's right. It's like, whoop. Uh, yeah, now there's there's that Philips one you're talking about. It's under a 1000 bucks. It just seems that can't be good. Yeah. But the, the reviews look pretty decent, though. They're, and it looks like it works with a MacBook, so um, it's something worth trying. I'm going to try it out when I get back to Hawaii. Okay. If, Unless something better comes happens, along since it, then. <laughs> it just it just sends your, your spidey sense tingling, right? It's like, how yeah. can that be good? Because if it is good, why is anything else selling? Of course, how many uh, how many other people be excited about a 40-inch monitor? Hmm. Software developers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the, the big thing I found when I built this 4960 by 1600 display rig was 1600 pixels high makes a huge difference. Oh, definitely. In, it's In the lines of code. That's what matters more than the is- width. And so I've, from from here on out, it's just been me looking for how do I get more height? And 2160 high, that's high. All right, we got to go back to work because we do monitors all day. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, I would argue it's the most important tool in your toolbox right now as a developer, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've replaced a bunch of keyboards recently, but even top of the line, you know, cherry keyboards are 200 bucks. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you can, it's really hard to spend more than that on a keyboard. You know, there was that one crazy guy that made the LCDs in each key that was like a thousand dollar keyboard. But even that, I mean, we routinely can blow that out for monitors. Right. So 
Yeah, monitors are a very important ingredient to our job. No two ways about it. All right, so let's uh, let's get back to ASP.NET v Next here. Um, there's a couple of links that you uh, gave us to for the show notes here, and one of them was a .NET package search tool. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so one of the big problems that uh, comes up when you're starting in this new environment is that everything is a NuGet package. Um, so you're not adding assemblies to your project, but you're adding NuGet packages. And if you're using .NET Core in particular, um, you need to add every little thing to your project. So if you are looking for um, some reflection APIs, some for example, you may not be able to find them because they're not, they haven't been pulled into your project yet. And then if you don't know where they live, it's kind of difficult to find them. So, um, one of the Microsoft, uh, team members, I think he's a program manager, um, Glenn Condron, he, uh, put together a site called, uh, uh, packagesearch.azurewebsites.net. Mm-hmm. And essentially what you can do is you can type in the name of a namespace or a class name, and it will do the lookup for you to try and find the package for you. Wow. So, Sean, and that's something that is, it's been a lifesaver really, because there, if you're missing something and you, you, it tells you that you're not, that uh, you have a reference missing, it's incredibly difficult to figure out how to get things. Yeah. NuGet is definitely front and center in, uh, in VNext, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's not and just an option. No, I mean, it, it is integral, actually, to the way that the compilation system works. Right. Uh, everything is compiled from uh, packages or from source code. So when you actually build an application in ASP.NET 5, you're not actually typically compiling your application. You're, you're, you're leaving the source code in place, and then the application, as it runs, compiles it on the fly. And Do we still have NuGet hell, Rick? Yes, <laughs> that's still going to be. We used to have DLL hell, and now we have NuGet reference hell. Yeah. NuGet so package I, version. I don't think that's going to get any better. I mean, one way or the other, you have to deal with versions. So that yeah. problem, it just gets shifted around to different things, right? Yep. yep. Uh, versions are always going to be a problem. But I think that the way that the changes that they made to uh, NuGet recently, I think are going to help with that so that you don't have to put the dependencies as uh, directly defined as you had to with assemblies, right? We had assembly hell because sometimes we had direct binding to a particular version of an assembly. Yeah, that was with a good NuGet, idea. Yeah, right. So now at least you can say, I want this assembly, give me the, any version higher than this, right? right? And so it will work as if you update. As long as you go forward, you're probably okay. So NuGet actually helped solve some problems compared to assembly binding with version numbers, at least. Okay, let's talk about async, because I know in vNext, async is everywhere. It's, uh, mm-hmm. and redone, and it's just, it's just a part of it. It's just the integral part. It's a key part. Yeah. Um, so everything has been rewritten in the ASP.NET stack and all the way down to the web stack that talks to the actual HTTP pipeline. Mm. Um, to be async. And what that means is that essentially all the IO processing that is being done is done in async tasks. So all the controller methods that you uh, access in your MVC code, for example, are async methods. And so when you call the database, you should essentially make your query async in order to retrieve the data in an async format so that the server isn't tying up connections at that point. And we also really need to revisit that whole idea because um, some people who have done threading and understand the overheads of threads, uh, you may not know that the the whole async await thing and and the async framework that's built into .NET here is not necessarily going to make stuff work on a different thread. Um, If there's the possibility for asynchrony without spinning up a new thread, it's, it's going to be utilized. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So it doesn't necessarily mean multi-threading and right. IO completion ports often aren't because they just call you back. It's an eventing model essentially. Uh, and so it's just offloading a of functionality and freeing up the thread that is the main execution thread. Mm. And then when whatever is done, calling you back and saying, Hey, the data is done. Yeah. So all it does is it's not something that is necessarily faster. Um, it just allows you to scale better potentially. It makes better use of the CPU resources that you have available on the machine. 
Can you talk about the modularity of ASP.NET Phoenix? And particularly, is that something that's going to make, you know, assembling our applications more difficult or, uh, or is that going to help us? Or is it a little of both? It's kind of a mixed bag. So I mentioned modularity earlier on, and that's supposedly one of the benefits in that we can uh, tailor our applications to exactly the pieces that we need and then only pull those pieces in. Yeah, you build your own pipeline, in other words. Yeah, well, you're pulling in the pieces. You're not pulling in stuff that you don't actually require, right? Yeah, so yeah. you just reference the things that your application uses, and hopefully you're only referencing the things that are actually uh, relevant to your application, so you're not having the overhead of stuff that's not needed. But, and the reality of it is, unfortunately, that when you pull in a big library like Entity Framework or ASP.NET MVC, those things pull in a huge chunk of stuff from the get-go. Mm. So you don't actually control all those little libraries because those libraries automatically pull all of that stuff in. So the way that NuGet works is it's hierarchical, right? Mm -hmm. Just like it does now. It has a top-level reference, and then that reference references other pieces, and then that pulls in other pieces and other pieces and other pieces. So when you look at an ASP.NET application, ASP.NET 5 application, and you actually drill into the dependency tree of one of the top-level um NuGet packages, as you can do in Visual Studio, you'll see that it's pulled in everything that you can think of. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think the overhead um, of having all of that stuff pulled in is not that much different than what we used to get with, you know, pulling in MS Corelib or System or whatever. Right. Well, this is the big debate, right? Like, this is what Node brought to the table was don't bring in all this stuff you don't need, just bring in the stuff you do need. But what if you need all this stuff? Right. So it becomes more difficult as a developer when you don't have something because you have to go find it, right? So uh, all the system components that we're so used to in .NET, they're not necessarily all there. So there is two development models where this matters. And so number one is that model that I just described is if you're building a top-level application that is a web application, that's not really a problem because all those dependencies are going to be there already because you pulled them in as part of Entity Framework or MVC or whatever other high-level library you're using. However, if you a low-level developer, let's say you're building some sort of class library that provides a service or even just a business object library of some sort where you're not depending on some of these top-level uh NuGet packages, then it's your responsibility to pull in those those uh, individual NuGet packages that you require in your application. And that's where it gets kind of messy is because sometimes uh, you end up pulling in a hundred different packages. Uh, so I have a little side project that I work on and I have a library project in there that is very, very simple. And I'm just looking at it here now. It has 20 dependencies, 20 NuGet packages that I have to pull in just to get this very, very simple library that is essentially three or four classes of string utilities. And that's all the stuff that is pulling in. So you, this package search site that I mentioned is becomes really important in those scenarios because you're going to have to go out and find all those dependencies somehow. Okay. Um, if you're a, a web API person, you know, we love web API and you hear Oh, there is no more web API. It's really kind of funny because, well, what, like you said before, you can do that, but it's just not called web API anymore. It's sort of a unified platform, isn't it? For web pages and web API and MVC. Right. So the re, the reason for that is, is that in, uh, the current versions of ASP.NET, we have a separate web API and a separate MVC stack. So they're very similar in the way they work, but underneath the covers, they're actually two completely separate stacks. They're uh, two different code bases implemented in different assemblies. And there's always been some confusion in the behaviors between the two stacks being very similar, but not the same. So if people are building an MVC and a web API application at the same time, it's often you can't share the filters, you can't share right. any of the common components that are implemented essentially the same way, but they are actually different and separate components that you have to implement. So in ASP.NET 5, we just have one model, which is MVC and web API combined. And it takes away some of the 
concepts that we had in Web API, like these low-level objects like HTTP response message and uh, HTTP request message. But overall, the functionality is still very similar, and you still build APIs in a similar way that you used to build it. And if you have an application that was a web API application and you want to move it forward, uh, the ASP.NET team is also providing a shim that essentially gives you back that uh, API service that a uh, that web API presented. So you can plug that into the existing application, the uh, ASP.NET 5 application, and then you get those same interfaces. So you would still be able to use HTTP response message and HTTP request message if you wanted to do that. Do you see that as a bridge to migrating an app or just because you know your way around Web API, here's how you get to work with a tool that seems familiar? Well, it depends. Some people really like that model because it's very explicit. Um, The old model is it's more low level, right? You have a lot more control with it. So the new model is more like MVC. It's uh, where you use essentially the method interface to declare of how things get returned. So you return objects and values as opposed to message objects uh, that are more internal. So it's just a different way of developing, and I guess it's a choice that you can choose to make. But to me, I think I would go with, if if you had to choose and you don't have a preference one way or the other, I would choose what's in the box and not use the shim, obviously. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a style thing. Right. And no, as a max, you're just, uh, you're, you're doing it... Uh, a different way now. Right. So Azimax is HTTP handlers. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, that's web services. And there is no, there's no support for SOAP in the stack. Right. So if you need to build a SOAP service, you probably would want to use a classic application and add a, a service handler. So WCF or Azimax if you wanted to in a classic application. So there's no SOAP stack. Um, from what I hear is there will be client support for WCF so that you can build WCF clients, but there's not going to be server support, at least not initially. And there was some rumblings about uh, not having VB support originally. What Whatever happened with that? You know, I'm not sure, but I'm, I am I do know that VB is supported at this point, I yeah, think. Yeah, maybe it was just yeah. the first beta that came out. Yeah, it was, it was just in the very beginning. So it, it's going to be supported. Um, I personally haven't looked at it, so I'm not really, <laughs> honestly, I'm not really sure if it works even. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, this is a question I love to ask, which is, is there anything that is on your wish list that they haven't done or they maybe they don't plan to do or you wish that was done differently? Um, I haven't really given that any thought. There's been so many things to think about just in what is actually there yeah. that I'm not sure that I even want to ask But you're not missing anything obvious then. No, it's not really anything obvious is missing at this point. Um, it's It's more... Um, along the lines of, you know, I wish the process was a little bit easier to get things going. Right. Uh, when you start with an application, there, there's a lot of things that, that you need to think about in terms of, you know, how do I configure my application? How do I set up the dependency injection? Um, I, I guess there is one thing that I would like to see is, and uh, that is not have the, uh, have it not completely depend on dependency injection only. Okay, hmm. so everything is basically set up with dependency injection in this framework, but um, there are uh, a number of things where dependency injection can get in the way, um, especially if you're doing low-level stuff. So one of the things that I'm thinking of here is is the configuration uh, set up in in, in ASP.NET five, mm-hmm. and essentially the only way that you can get a configuration in uh, ASP.NET five is through dependency injection. You set up the configuration objects, and then somehow in your code you have to be able to get a reference to uh, the service provider so that you can actually instantiate a reference to uh, your configuration that is that might be stored anywhere. And there's no way, there's no static way to get at the configuration object the way you could in in uh, standard ASP.NET or .NET in general. We've always had access to the configuration manager. We always knew how to get there somehow. And now you can't do that unless you have a reference that is passed down all the way through the stack of the application to the bottom to get there. And that's actually one of the things that is causing a bunch of problems for applications that want to port to uh, the .NET Core or ASP.NET 5 in general is that most 
uh, existing applications or libraries depend on configuration in some way, shape, or form. And in the new stack, there's no way to actually do that. So in order to port any sort of application from classic applications, you'd have to um, you'd have to figure out some other way to handle the configuration. Okay. Something you said earlier in the show, I've just been sort of rattling this around. Uh, it's really talking about this model of our back end now is very much just a bunch of services, and then you're going to have some pages you call to that send down JavaScript to the client to call to these services. And is this really the way that ASP.NET's redesigned now? Is not it doesn't even really seem MVC-ish anymore if you're going to focus that way. Well, but that's not the only thing that they're doing. But this right. is, I, I think this is a, one of the big focuses uh, of this uh, new platform is a lot of applications, especially applications, when we're talking about applications as opposed to just a content type websites, um, are built using a spa type approach. And in those situations, what you do is you tend to return JSON responses from the server and then feed that information into the client side application. So a lot of these requests tend to be smaller, not sending huge amounts of data back and forth. And so that makes it a little bit easier to uh, generate small pieces of data. Mm -hmm, and so right. these things uh, can be more efficient, right? Because you don't have this whole pipeline of HTML parsing and whatnot that you have to go through. And in a, in a lot of these scenarios, the services that you create, they need to be very high performance. That's at least the goal uh, because they're getting called more frequently. Um, when you generate one giant page, that's one very big call of data that you do all at once. But when you generate uh, applications, you tend to make a bunch of JSON calls to get little small pieces of data back one at a time. So, Rick, we're just about out of time. Uh, is there anything that we missed that you want to uh, call attention to before we hang up? Yeah, one thing that I thought is kind of interesting that we didn't really touch on is the new project system. Um, and the new project system is kind of a cool setup in that it allows you to much more easily deal with multiple targets in one project. And I think that's something worth calling out because it's been such a pain in the past to build multi-targeted projects um, in in the old .NET stack. So the new project system is makes it really easy to set up multiple targets so you can create a single project that targets both the full framework, like a regular .NET component of some sort, and then also uh, target DNX at the same time, for example. Mm. So it's really nice to be able to do that. And then on top of it, the new project system allows you to directly create NuGet packages. In fact, that's the only only thing you can create. Nice. When you when you compile a uh, uh, ASP.NET 5 project, or I guess a DNX project, we should call it really, if mm -hmm. you compile it, it, it creates a NuGet package. And you actually have to tell it that you want to go to disk because, as I mentioned earlier, by default, we compile everything from memory. So I think that's a that's a really nice improvement, along with the fact that you can now just dump files into a folder and they will be recognized. You don't have a project that tracks the files per se. It just uses the file system as its service. Fantastically awesome. Hey, uh, what is your dev environment of choice, by the way, for building uh, web apps? Uh, I still am heavily on Visual Studio. Um, I run on a MacBook Pro like you do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I do a bunch of mobile development, so that's the main reason that I'm running on the Mac. Yep. Uh, and uh, so I do a bunch of Cordova development. I use the Visual Studio tools for Cordova, which I really enjoy. Mm. Um, they have an excellent, excellent uh, debugging experience, and I'm really happy with that setup. And to me, Visual Studio continues to be just an awesome tool for the actual uh, IntelliSense features that are available for JavaScript, and then also the debugging features, especially for the Cordova applications. You can actually use the Visual Studio debugger to debug directly into a device from the Mac, mm -hmm. which is pretty awesome. Yeah, great. All right, Rick, well, thanks. It's been great, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, thanks, guys. All right, and we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks.
.NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.